America is imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum in the name of national security. Allies and opponents alike are crying foul. Talk of retaliation, even a trade war, is in the air. By some reckonings, a trade conflict is already here. But if war has broken out, how will we know who's winning? If it hasn't broken out, how will we know when it does, if at all? Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. This week, we step back from the daily skirmishes to try to figure out what's really going on here, and just as importantly, where we are headed. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg View in New York. Guiding us through the issue is Shannon O'Neill a Latin American trade expert at the Council on Foreign Relations, who's also working on a book about the global supply chains, riveting stuff and perfectly timed. Shannon, welcome back to Benchmark. Thanks for having me. So, Shannon, we'll get to steel and aluminum shortly, but first, let's try to define the terrain. What actually is a trade war other than a campaign slogan? Well, it definitely is that, a campaign slogan. But I would say if we think about a trade war, um, not to stretch this metaphor too far, but right now we're having skirmishes. We're having the Trump administration upset about particular products, about steel, about aluminum, and launching out not just at China, which is really the source of their ire, but at the overall world. Um, But that really is one particular skirmish. And we've seen these in the past, particularly over steel, as well as other issues. If we would get to a trade war, which I don't see yet, but we're getting closer to, that is where you start seeing a tit for tat, a retaliation from countries that may have nothing to do with the underlying original grievance. And so you see other sectors, say agriculture, other sectors in the economy hit uh, with retaliatory tariffs and then this back and forth. So that to me would be what we would see as a full-blown trade war. So we'll get back to China in a second. But when was the last time we were in a war? What happened? Who won? A lot of this is very fuzzy. The one that everybody goes back to is is back in the 19, late 20s, early 30s with the Smoot-Hawley Act. And there we really did see a trade war. We saw dozens of countries react to each other, throw up their trade barriers, tariffs and others, and the overall global economy take a sizable hit because of it. That is the classic trade war. But we've seen skirmishes before. We've seen them in the 1980s with the U.S. and the Japanese and others. We've seen them along the way. And What it does, what history seems to tell us is that in the end, no one really wins. So when we're talking about today, you said we're still in kind of skirmishes at the moment. How will we know if we're in a full-blown trade war as opposed to, say, just sponsoring some rebels with cash and some spare M16s? (laughs) So one of the things I would say as I look back at the last 70 plus years, as we've actually had in this particular area, in the trade arena, we've actually had some rules of the road. Um, We've had it through GATT, then through the WTO, the World Trade Association Organization. We have seen more and more countries join in and actually allow sort of a multilateral system to develop, also including free trade agreements among many different countries. So there has been in many countries this idea that It is better to follow these overall rules, multilateral rules. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose in particular sectors, but the rules and the stability that provides is beneficial overall to your economy as well as others. And so the issue today is, do those rules stand? 
And we have had countries along the way who that have defected from these rules, that have not followed the rules, China being one of the, the you know, perpetrators here where they don't tend to follow those rules, even as they've tried to join the World Trade Organization, the WTO and the like. Uh, and so the question here, I think, is do those overall rules falter? That's when you get into a real trade war. And what I would be looking for is as these steel and aluminum tariffs go forward, do the Europeans retaliate the way they have said that they'll go after agricultural products or products in particular districts of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and others? And then does the Trump administration retaliate that he's threatened back that he'll put a tariff on cars? If you start seeing this tit for tat, this back and forth, I think that's where we really will see see a full-blown escalation. So you mentioned Japan. It didn't seem like it at the time when people were smashing Toshibas on the steps of Congress, but Japan relied on the U.S. for its defense. The two countries were treaty allies. The post-1945 political system is a product of U.S. imposition. I mean, what did we miss then and are we at risk of missing it now? We did see incredible tensions. The Reagan administration put on several types of of protectionist measures, tariffs, but more voluntary controls the Japanese agreed to. There was a lot of back and forth there. And partly because of the things you mentioned, there was this underlying defense alliance. There was an underlying agreement on a lot of other issues there that they were able to disagree strongly, vehemently about the trade issues, but come to some sort of agreement. And what's different today is that that doesn't seem to be the case with China. We don't have as many areas of agreement. We don't have as many partnerships. We certainly don't have the security alliance that we had with Japan or that we've had with Europe and other places. So I think there are less easy areas of cooperation to turn to to try to take down the temperature on on these areas of conflict, which are definitely in the commercial area along with others. But was that type of context actually available at the time? If you go back to just iconic cultural symbols of that era, the classics got to be the Michael Crichton book, Rising Sun, and the movie that came of it. You would never know that the US and Japan were close military allies. I mean, that was depicted as a war. It's true, right? And that was it was an incredibly tense time. And so perhaps we come out of where we are today and we come out the other end and you say, oh, we forgot about all these other things that, that bound the United States and China or bound the United States and Europe together. But I do think the Chinese U.S. relationship is a very different one today. Because there's no military alliance. There's no military alliance. And there's there's a distance over over time there. Right? You don't have this long history of cooperation where you have other areas of the government, if not in the popular perception, but other areas of the government that had long-standing partnerships and communications and day-to-day uh, working back and forth that could calm down or at least bring in those securities concerns, those defense concerns to the overall relationship. And today, I would say, as we look at the U.S.-Chinese relationship, it's not just the commercial side that worries the United States, but it's the defense side that worries as well, right? General Mattis and others in the Defense Department are very worried about where China is going on the defense side, on the security side, its positions in South China Sea and the uh, and the like. So that isn't an area today of cooperation. In fact, it's one of potential conflict or worry as well. Shannon, we mentioned earlier that you're working on a book about global supply chains. The tariffs imposed by President Donald Trump were on imported steel and aluminum. Before that, uh, there were solar panels, uh, washing machines. Is, is there a pattern here? And how would this figure into these kinds of global supply chains, are they going to get gummed up by these tariffs or is everything just going to keep uh, functioning smoothly? 
This is something that I do think is threatened by this back and forth on on tariffs. And what we have seen around the world is, yes, there are global supply chains, but there are really regional hubs that have developed. So we have one in Asia, we have one in Europe, and we have one here in the United States in North America. And so anything that would put tariffs to limit, protect the movement of goods between the three nations here in North America, the United States, Canada, and Mexico, could gum up, as you say, these supply chains. And so these tariffs, right now, the Trump administration has said that steel and aluminum will be, that our neighbors will be exempt, at least until we see whether or not NAFTA is solved. So it hasn't happened yet. But if we saw steel tariffs, aluminum tariffs put on Canadian and Mexican products, this would particularly hit these very integrated supply chains. And the worst off, um, those hit hardest, would be the auto industry. These are big inputs into the auto industry. Much of that steel and aluminum comes from Canada, comes from Mexico, goes into U.S. cars, is put together in U.S. factories. And so those are the ones that would lose out. And in fact, uh, one of my colleagues at the Council of Foreign Relations did a calculation and said that if we applied all these tariffs, that Yes, you would see maybe upwards of 30,000 steel jobs recovered, but you would see at least that much in just the auto industry, that you would see a decline of 40-plus thousand jobs in the first couple of years because you would see people cut back on buying cars. Just that little increase in price in the overall car would lead to really ripple effects through these supply chains. Now, the president cited national security in the steel and aluminum decisions and then went on to say that national security allies would have opt-outs. Reconcile that for us. Well, consistency doesn't seem to be part of this overall plan here. And and that is the real question. In pulling out the national security banner as the reason to put these these tariffs in place, you're saying that all these countries you're going to apply to are threatening national security. Uh, but then Does Canada threaten us? This is the question. <laughs> But then the question is, if you allow people to be exempted, and and for instance, what they're saying is you're allowed to be exempted, Mexico and Canada, as long as they renegotiate NAFTA, then you're saying that actually this isn't for national security reasons. This is for some other sort of reason, which is a real question. And then this also, if we allow any issue to be put forward for national security, and it's a broad blanket that affects every country, I mean, we're saying Brazil and Germany and other European countries, all of these are national security challenges to the United States, then you're inviting back from those countries their ability to say that things that they want to protect in their economy are also national security interests. So, you know, French farmers can say that it's a national security interest to to keep out U.S. grains or other products. We could see this reverberate through the system. And, and a lot of the careful work that's gone to build the World Trade Organization, these, these global rules could begin to, to fall apart. Well, I was just going to follow up on that. These global rules you're talking about, even though you know some actors, some states are going a little bit outside, it seems like talking about national security and the possibility of other countries using other kinds of justifications that might not be on their face totally justified is its own way of sort of scrapping the rules and in a way that nobody would agree on them anymore and could lead to a lot of unforeseen consequences. Is that a fear that you might have? It is a fear that I have. I mean, it's a fear that we return not to go back to your your philosophy courses in college, but are we moving back to this Hobbesian world where might makes right and everything's nasty, brutish, and short? Or do we have a set of rules that people abide by? And when one actor, one player doesn't abide by the rules, do the others come together and punish that individual or that actor or that country 
for violating the rules? Or do you just throw the whole table over and say, okay, no, this person broke the rules. We won't have any rules at all. And we'll just see what we can, the most we can gain for our own country. And what we've seen in history is that that doesn't benefit. Everyone loses in that in that case. Yes, you might gain a bit more relatively than the others, but the pie shrinks. Um, now, when China positions itself in contrast to the U.S. as supporters of the rules-based system, what do they really mean? China has benefited tremendously from this rules-based system. There's no doubt about that. They have grown, if you think back to the late 80s, from a very small part of the world economy and the world exports to now one of the heavyweights. So this is something, this openness of markets, the ability to trade back and forth, the real consistency in rules has been a huge benefit to China. So of course they want the system to continue. Now what the United States and many other countries want, and it's not just the United States, uh, but Europe and Latin American countries all over the world, they want China to play by some of the same rules that they're playing by. And there is in many industries, there's significant evidence that China uh, forces the transfer of intellectual property and technology. There's significant evidence that China in many ways unfairly props up state-owned enterprises, gives them cheap credit, free land, removed from taxes, all sorts of things that create an unlevel playing field for, for the private sector in the United States or Europe or other places. So, but they're basking in great trade PR right now. This is true, but you know, don't let the facts get in front of a, a good story, right? And they're playing this to the hilt. Um, but if the United States wants to step forward and enforce the rules, they're going to need all these other countries that also want to enforce the rules together. So, Like the EU. Like the EU, like the countries in Latin America, Brazil, like Canada and Mexico together. That would be a much starter strategy, in my view, to take on what may have been unfair practices, which are, have been unfair practices in steel and aluminum, for instance. Shannon, now that we're going down this path of skirmishes with an eye toward potential war, rules being thrown out the window, new rules arbitrarily being written, can we ever go back to a more rules-based system or are we not going to get back there unless there's a whole war that forces everybody to start back over again? Well, I don't think we've entered the battlefield here yet. I think we're still before the war. But if we enter this, it will be hard to walk it back. And I think one of the telling aspects here is, do we see in the coming months and years, do we see nations rally around uh, a somewhat fragile World Trade Organization, the WTO, and support it? We may need to reform it to make it stronger, to make it actually do the things that it needs to do. Um, or do we see it blown up? And that really is is going to be a, a crucial moment. If we blow the World Trade Organization up, I think it will take many years, if not a decade or more, to rebuild that system. But it's still there. It's not gone yet. It's just in jeopardy. Shannon, you and I were both guests at the 2017 annual Mexican Business Summit. And there was a lot of angst, a lot of gnashing of teeth. Executives there thought, well, look, if we just set up these global supply chains, corporate interest will take care of itself, and we don't really have to worry about government at all. And the shock of the 2016 election, it's fair to say, was still sinking in. People were walking around stunned. What did they, and by extension, we in the economic mainstream, miss? I think what economists and investors and others sometimes miss is the rationality of the investment, the rationality of the decisions 
often belies the politics. And for many years, we've forgotten the politics. And politics are emotional. Politics are about people and ideas and aspirations. And some of that is not necessarily rational. Or some of that only sees, you know, part of the proverbial elephant that's in the room. And so this is the challenge. I do think the United States, the world trading system, we were coming back from a global recession we thought, okay, the economics has worked itself out. We're, we're moving forward. This is all going to be fine. But those people, whether in Mexico or in the United States or around the world, that got hit by the recession, they were left behind. And it's not just that recession. It is the transformations that are happening around the world. Trade is a small part of this, a part of it, um, but other things are happening. So I think the politics will be a guiding force as we look forward for the next couple years and and decade. And that is something that, frankly, I think a lot of those that talk about these issues were missing. Shannon, given these trends in politics, one year from now, will we be in a global trade war? I'd like to stick with my optimistic nature and say no, but I do think these recent steps have been worrying. Um, The one thing that I do see is that many countries around the world are moderating their behavior. Yes, they're upset. Yes, they think it's unfair. But we haven't seen the quick reaction in many of these places that one might expect to what many would consider an affront. And so as we look forward, and particularly as I think about Latin America, where I spend a lot of time and look, right now we probably have, over the last few decades, we probably have the most free trade friendly, pro-market set of governments that we've had in in many, many years. That may change this year because there are a lot of elections. A lot of people are going to come up and we may see things turn over. But but that tells me as you look at this hemisphere, as you look at Europe, as you look at other places, there's a lot of leadership and there are a lot of voters who have voted for those leaders in democracies who still believe in these fundamental rules of the game, who still see trade as the way to prosperity and to growth. So I think we need to temper our pessimism um, about some of the rhetoric that's going back and forth that can be quite hostile or acrimonious. And do remember that there is a large segment of the world that has benefited from this opening, that have seen their incomes rise. Um, And so can we find a way for this net benefit uh, to be more inclusive? That is the challenge of these politicians. Does that optimistic view about governments in the Americas hinge on the outcome of Mexico's presidential election? What does the candidacy of Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador mean? This is really, I think, a bellwether for this optimistic versus pessimistic view. And the front runner right now, um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who they call AMLO, that's his acronym, he is an old school state development protectionist type. He was raised or came of age, politically of age in the 1970s, and he's still there economically. That's how he sees the world. And this is really, to me, for Mexico, this is a bellwether election on the economic model of the last 30 years. This is an election about NAFTA. Is Mexico's path to prosperity, to growth, is it one that engages the world, that's market-friendly, that's U.S.-friendly, that looks more openly Or do you go back to a very closed economy, one that's self-sufficient, as he would say, that's turned inwards? Now, we can talk as economists about why that doesn't really work and why that won't happen. But 
But that vision is his vision. So I do think what happens July 1, which is when this election happened, has huge ramifications, not just for Mexico, but for for this direction. Do you get one of the NAFTA partners who in many ways matches Trump's temperament on trade, would turn back to a protectionism? And I think that has a lot to say what would happen to NAFTA, but in general, what would happen with this tit for tat, the potential back and forth you might see that would lead to a trade war? Now, it can seem like a fairly arcane thing to have an entire presidential campaign of a country of more than 100 million people hinge on NAFTA, but it's a central organizing principle of the entire Mexican country, is it not? Everything has been geared towards its economic relationship with the United States, like everything. It is, and NAFTA has really become the rule of law, the underlying rules for foreign investment, for companies operating, international companies operating in Mexico. So if you pull that away, you're left with Mexican rule of law, Mexican domestic courts, which are much more fragile and at times much more likely to be swayed, to be more arbitrary uh, than to uphold a much more balanced rule of law. So this is a huge fear of those that are down there. And frankly, it's a fear not just for international companies, for domestic companies, for the Mexican companies that want to operate in a place that's quite open to new ideas, to entrepreneurship. Mexico has been moving in that direction. And the worry is, if you pull away NAFTA, if you turn back in, if the state takes a much greater role in the economy, choosing champions and the like back in that way of the 1970s, that you will stifle a lot of the entrepreneurship, the productivity, and the growth that has allowed Mexico to prosper over the last 30 years. All right, Shannon. Well, maybe we can have you back after the Mexican election or if there's a full-blown trade war either way. (laughs) I would love to. Thank you. Let's hope that doesn't mean next week. (laughs) Exactly. Shannon, thanks so much for being on. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Please take the time to rate and review the show. And you can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me at at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest, Shannon O'Neill, is at Shannon K. O'Neill. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.